0: Blog Talk Radio.
1: Welcome to Zen Up, a podcast produced by Sunbury Press's Book Speak Network, and you are on Episode 9. I am your host, Susan Kiskis. In the show, we bring two worlds together, wellness and spirituality. From yoga to Buddhism, healthy eating, to turning dreams into reality, listeners will find themselves on a journey into their own virtual spiritual pilgrimage. If you want to continue the conversation after the show, visit my Facebook page, Yogic Living with Susan, or sign up for my weekly newsletter at SusanKissKiss.com. Today's subject revolves around sobriety and recovery and may be inappropriate for young children. We ask for your sensitivity and your discretion. I'm very happy to introduce to you today's guest, who is spiritual leader and author David Harshada Wagner. David has been teaching meditation and self-empowerment to people all over the world for more than 20 years. Classically trained in Indian wisdom, traditions of yoga, bhakti, vandanta, and tantric Shaivism, he serves on the faculties of Yoga Glow, Purpalu and Omega Institutes. David is the author of Backbone, the Modern Man's Ultimate Guide to Purpose, Passion, and Power, and is currently working on his next book based on the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. David, welcome to Zen Up.
2: Good morning. Great to be here.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much. And I want to apologize to our listeners today. I've got a little bit of a cold going on, um, so hopefully you can hear me okay. Um, so, David, I'm, I, I found you in a happenstance way. I can't even remember exactly how that happened, and I thought, you know, this guy looks very interesting. Um, I liked the fact of some of the work that you were doing just on a very um, – kind of surface way for what I could see, that you were really kind of drawing back the curtains of Western, Westernized yoga and really diving more deep into the traditional work. And I was really fascinated that you were calling, you know, you were talking about the work that you do, calling it a ministry. And, um, and then, yeah. And then, so I want you, if you don't mind just starting off the conversation, talking more about where did that come from and,
2: and how did that develop? Yes, well, um, I I think that we're in a very interesting time right now because through social media and a lot of other factors, on one level, more people are doing spiritual practices. And I I put spiritual practices in, in quotations here. More people are doing yoga, meditation, different kinds of um, spiritual courses, reading books and spiritual books uh, than ever before, ever in history. There's never been so many people, especially doing many of the practices that come from the Indian wisdom traditions like yoga and meditation. But the way that this big Absurgence is happening is more in an in industrial way. You know, it's become an industry. It's become something that, you know, people have figured out how to turn into, I don't want to, I'm not putting it down when I say this, but it, it's like yoga and spirituality has been a sort of a commodity. It's, it's a lifestyle a brand, you could say. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, very positive because like I said, there's, there's more access to this stuff than ever before. I mean, I have thousands and thousands of people that can meditate with me now and, and practice with me, you know, through the different, um, kind of outlets where I'm teaching online and so on and so forth. Downside to it is that, um, like anything else in an industry or a commercial venture, what drives it is what the customers want. And when the spiritual students are no longer students, but they're really customers, you know, they're really like clients and, and, and customers in an industry, you know, what I notice is that um, in many cases, what those, you know, what most of those people are doing, um, you know, when we're looking at the millions and millions of people now, Um, It's very surface level kind of practice, maybe not so transformational as it could be. And God is being left out of it. You know, the whole, the whole kind of spiritual aspect of it, because it's a, it's a deep topic and it takes some grappling for people to do. And, um, and so, yeah, I'm just noticing that like the, like the deep power is coming out of a lot of it. So, that's part of it. And just personally for myself, you know, being a, 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 doing this is my livelihood for, for many, many years now. And I'm, because I'm not associated with a church or a temple or an ashram or any kind of an institutional thing. Um, And I, I have to be for all intents and purposes, like an entrepreneur, you know, where I have to like reach out and sort of do marketing stuff and, you know, make sure that people are, are hearing my message and signing up for my things. I realized that even for, for myself, it, it's a, it's a kind of a hazard that I have to negotiate. And so I just realized it's like, well, I don't really have a business. This is more like a ministry in the sense that, um, you know, I'm not selling a product for the sake of profit. You know, I have a message and, you know, a methodology that I want to get out to as many people as possible because I believe in it and because um, it, it helps people because I feel like this is what the universe is calling me to do. And so just by looking at my own work in that way and talking to the different teachers that, that I associate with and starting this conversation, Um, It's just been a very rich conversation that, you know, I know that for a lot of spiritual teachers that I talk to, it brings a sense of relief because, you know, most of us did not get into this (laughs) to make money or be famous or whatever. We got into this because we ourselves had a transformation or because we really believe in this work or because, you know, we have some kind of a spiritual awakening. And then we just want to share it with people. And, and before we know it, now we're a small business. And, you know, now we have to, you know, do all this marketing and branding and get headshots and all this kind of stuff and be on Instagram. And um, for a lot of spiritual teachers, there's a little bit of like a, a rub in there. So um, I just find that looking at as a ministry, looking at as a sort of a sacred work, um, it, it, it kind of brings a sense of relief.
1: And in one of your blogs on your website, um, I loved it that you actually were talking about how Mother Teresa had such an impact on you when you um, heard her narrate a documentary when you were in college. And yeah. um, and I'm wondering, did she also have an impact on using the term ministry in the way that you look at the work that you do?
2: Oh, that's interesting. I don't know about the, about the term ministry coming from Mother Teresa, but certainly, you know, during this, you know, for the last couple months of the summer, um, you know, it's summer here in, in the Northern Hemisphere. I live in California. Um, I had a, a big framed picture of her on the workspace where I was meeting with my clients online. See, I just called them clients. Um, where I was meeting with with the the students and, and people that I work with online, um, to sort of remind me because you know, obviously as a as a nun, but also she had such a commitment to working with the poor, and so she and her sisters had a very intense relationship with poverty and money and stuff like that. Um, she she's a good. She's a very good uh, litmus test for, for if you're starting to, to get too commercial. But um, I, I think the main thing from Mother Teresa that inspires me as a teacher um, was the way, you know, if you think about it, there's so many, mother, there's so many nuns. Well, now there's not so many, actually, but historically at the time that she became a nun, there were lots and lots of nuns, but not lots and lots of Mother Teresas. And, you know, she will say that she's not an extraordinary person, um, but she just had an extraordinary sense of quietude to, to hear what she believes is God's calling, in her case, to work with the poorest of the poor. And she heard that calling when she was very young, and she followed it relentlessly. And this is the part of the story that doesn't, you know, that isn't so, isn't so famous. You know, when she was a young nun and she was had first gotten that calling, she had to overcome so many hurdles to create her order, the missionaries of charity. And um, to the extent that, you know, her first, the first place that she set up in Calcutta, her home for the dying, the Nirmala Herday, there was no space, like the church didn't give her a space. She ended up using a space in the back of a Kali temple, in the back of a Hindu temple mm-hmm. that is still to this day, you know, the, the space that she uses for that. But anyway, that, that's the inspiration. It's just like she had this radical idea that, um, you know, a lot of her superiors in the mainstream just, you know, wasn't really interested in. And she was stuck to it no matter what because she knew that that's what was being asked of her, you know, in her case, you know, by God.
1: So I find it interesting that, like, you grew up in Illinois, and as you're trying to, you know, you deal with adolescence, right, and you're going to school and you feel, um, and you're and it, um, from what I read, you know, you were an art student. And Mother Teresa just kind of, like, changes your world and starts you on this path to um, really learning more about spiritualism and meditation. Um, And so one of the things I love is that you actually talk about, so like leap forward many years later to 2004 and you have this – Organization called Banyan Education, and you say, quote unquote, that you got to meditate and do this heart work with all kinds of people. But so looking at your, you know, your um, your bio and about you, it seems like you've been doing this heart work your whole life. So I find it <laughs> interesting. I'm curious if you're aware that you almost went through this very difficult heart work in order to, you know, continually break open the heart to swell and be completely open to. Um, just loving everyone and caring for everyone, just like Mother Teresa did.
2: <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it, it feels like that in a, in a very, um, in a very sort of n- non-traditional way, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> I totally agree
1: Um, so can you tell us a little bit about for people who are just starting on their spiritual path, um some of the things that really kind of helped you um, get started. I know that there was a little bit of um, not necessarily even in the yogic tradition Um, you were talking about, you know, in one of your pieces of your bio that there was, um, I think it was a Christian ministry that helped uh, the disabled that you would volunteer at. And as a teenager, it just kind of like opened you up to realizing that there's just pain comes in many different forms, including, you know, physical, that was able to take you out of your own ego.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I um I've been thinking about that ministry a lot recently. Yeah, my girl it was actually my girlfriend's dad um was the was the pastor of that ministry. And um I got sober when I was very young. It, I, I was I was a very uh, wild kid and you know, I mean the reason why I got into spirituality is because spirituality really saved my life and, you know, helped me get off drugs and alcohol when I was like a really young kid. Um, but anyway, fast forward in, you know, being a year or two sober, maybe in the first year or so of my sobriety, um, my girlfriend's dad, who before I was sober, was just this big scary Christian guy. Um, now suddenly I started to watch him and, and look at what he was doing. And yeah, he had a beautiful ministry where he and his brothers would, would take care of these people that had like uh, down syndrome or, or, different kinds of really severe disabilities. And um, I was able to just do volunteer work in that ministry. And it was great because, you know, his name was Norm, Norm Jager. Uh, he never asked me to become a Christian. He never even really talked about Christian teachings very much. Uh, it was just mostly about the service and just mostly about taking care of these people and loving these people. And he let me do that and encouraged me to do that. And um, that was exactly what I needed, <laughs> you know, because mm-hmm. if he would have you know taken out a Bible and started to try to teach me lessons from the Bible. I would have rebelled. I, I, I would not have been ready for for that at the time. But instead, in, now that I know the Bible, I understand that he was teaching me the Bible, but through action and, right. and through his example. And um, that's, you know, so, such a beautiful such a beautiful way, you know, and especially for a teacher like me that is such a talker and, you know, a writer, and, you know, I use words a lot, you know, he's a great example of someone who, who was just really teaching through, through his works.
1: So now you were mentioning about um, you went through, uh, re- you know, recovery of sobriety when you were much, um, much younger in your life. And did meditation play a role at that time, or did meditation come afterwards for you?
2: Well, I mean, serious meditation came later. Serious meditation came, you know, when I got into, you know, I had, you know, formal training with like Indian teachers and went to India and stuff like that. That came later. But um, in the 12 steps, you know, I went to to AA, which is a 12-step program there's an 11th step that says sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. Such a great, such a great step. But um, so the meditation was there then Um, it wasn't like serious meditation. Like I, I didn't, I didn't sort of really try to sit down and practice, Uh, you know, any meditation methods, it was mostly prayer in the beginning. And um, I didn't realize it, but I was, I was kind of teaching myself to meditate because I would pray and then listen for an answer Mm -hmm. and then pray and then listen. And, you know, that's now, you know, having taught meditation for 25 years. I think that's like one of the (laughs) deepest meditation that you can do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So um, one of the things I'm fascinated by, so I grew up in a family with uh, an alcoholic father and my Mm. brother had um, also been an alcohol and a drug addict and actually died of a drug overdose. Um, Mm. They were the ones who I saw my father Essentially, he didn't get sober until he couldn't move out of the nursing home. And my brother mm. um, had been in and out of rehab his whole life. My husband, however, mm. had actually, he's the one that I could see, he's the other side. So he's been sober for eight years, and, um, mm. and the 12-step program has been so powerful for him. And one of the yeah. biggest things was for him that I've seen is exactly what you're talking about in terms of heart prayer. It is actually just completely like letting go. It is realizing that you don't have the ability to do this on your own, that you are asking a higher power to, to help you and your community to help you. And it's just it's such a, a humbling yet yeah, powerful thing to be able to release any control, to realize that you don't have control, right, <laughs> and, but to, yeah. and, and to just let that ego go. Um, and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit of, about your um, experience or what you even teach because you have a program called The Courage to Change. And your program, it actually says that it's based on the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, but it's not about addiction and alcoholism. It's a, you know, you have the 12 steps provide an amazing in-depth path of self-inquiry and deep change. And I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, that, that process of just releasing and, and letting go.
2: Yeah, I'm so glad that you mentioned that course. You know, I, I have all these online courses that that people can do wherever they live, and I, I sort of forget about them because once I create them, then they're just there. And that course is so fun. Uh, yeah, I basically just took, you know, took the 12 steps that I had been practicing and learning, you know, for many, many years and and just thought, well, let's create a course that isn't just for for drug addicts and alcoholics and so people can go through and there's a step per week it's a 12 week course so it's also three months of support you know like it's nice sometimes to kind of bite off something and chew on it for for a couple of months in in our spiritual practice but um yeah you know the the thing about the the whole idea of a higher power is very important I just feel like for for new age and modern spiritual people because, you know, if you go to whole yoga class or any kind of a sort of modern offering, um, as I said before, people are, are a little afraid of the idea of God. They don't like to use the term God, especially. Um, but, you know, because it's not something that is popular in the the quote unquote industry, the the sacred aspect is being left out, and and so the way that people's language goes is it's like uh, instead of saying God, they'll say the universe or whatever. Um, you know, will be in yoga class and they'll put their hands together in that Namaste pose. And, and they'll say, okay, so put your hands together and then bow your head. And, and now they'll just say, just bow your head to yourself for coming to class. <laughs> mm-hmm. But like traditionally, traditionally, that's, you know, that doesn't do is bow your head to yourself. Uh, you know, you're either bowing your head to, to God or you're bowing your head to your master or something. But this whole idea of surrendering to anything else is getting, it's, it's becoming obsolete. Um not obsolete that it's not useful, but obsolete that it's just not profitable. Mm-hmm. So um I'm a big advocate and the reason why is that it's just a very practical reason. Is that like when you're in trouble, which you know, anybody who's in recovery knows that they're in trouble. If if they you know if they don't if they're not doing the work you know, their life could be in, in jeopardy. And, you know, the spiritual masters will tell us that it's not just alcoholics that are in trouble, but we're all in trouble because, you know, this life goes by so fast and, you know, there's, there's a way of living that we need to engender to really, like, get the most out of this, out of this moment of life and really live the life that, that we are meant to. Anyway, and when you're in trouble... The universe or whatever is not going to help you because all it is is it's just a euphemism. You don't want to say the word God so you say the the universe or whatever, but, you know, you have to be such a deep, deep mystical yogi to actually have a relationship with the universe or whatever, And so, you know, traditionally, people have had some kind of a form of God that they relate to. So Christians relate to Jesus and Hindus relate to, you know, different gods and goddesses. And, you know, Buddhists, you know, might relate to some idea of the Buddha nature or, or the Buddha, you know, form of the Buddha or something. And that gives us this sort of like focal point to focus that universal power. But also, ideally, we can have some kind of a personal relationship, so that we can so that we can pray to something that is bigger than us, that's wiser than us, that's more powerful than us. When we are powerless, you know. I did when I first started talking about this. I was teaching in New York, and I started just doing surveys in all these big groups of people that I was talking to, and. You know, and I I just say, how many people here feel uncomfortable with the term God? And everyone raised their hand. And I said, how many people here definitely believe in God, definitely believe in God? Like almost no one would raise their hand. And then I'd say, okay, so now just imagine this. You're driving down the road, your car goes off the road, your car crashes, you're you know, you're lying there in your car by yourself, you're bleeding to death. There's no way emergency services are gonna get to you. You're about to die. Are you gonna pray? Mm. Everyone raises their hand. Yeah. <laughs> right? So like in that moment all of a sudden people do actually believe in God but they have no no kind of relationship with it. So I just think that it's it's like that's when I'm on fire right now about is helping people to have these juicy like no bs relationships with god and in AA the way that we would say it is god of our understanding so we don't have to join anything we don't have to believe anybody else's thing but just to do some work ourselves and just think about okay well so what does that mean to me like what do i pray to what makes sense and then Paul on those traditions. Then we can read the Bible. Then we can look at the Dhammapada or the Bhagavad Gita or, you know, some of these other things that are here to help us. Then, quite frankly, we can look at angel cards or, you know, any of this New Age kind of stuff, too. And all of that stuff, instead of just being knickknacks in our, in our meditation room, then those things become tools for us that help to enrich that relationship that we have. You know, like I'm I'm here, I'm doing this interview. I'm in my kid's little art studio in our house here. And it's Mm -hmm. also the room I do a lot of my creative work. And, um, you know, I look around this room and obviously there's a lot of kids' artwork and a lot of mess. But then there's like a picture of like a Tibetan, like warrior goddess right here. And over there, there's like a, a picture of Jesus. And over on this wall, there are like these kind of new age aphorisms and, and affirmations that I, you know, had my kids help me paint and stick up on the wall. And the thing is, for me, is that I'm able to let all of this be truly sacred and truly feed my spirituality. I look out the window and, you know, it's morning time here and the, the sun is rising and you know, it's kind of shimmering through the trees. And, you know, that to me is is also, you know, speaking God's love to me. It's Shining through this drawing that my kids did, I think for maybe for Father's Day or something. And it, it just says, I love Dada. And they trace their hands <laughs> on this piece of paper. And it's like, to me, it's like, yeah, I love my kids. And, you know, like, of course I love them so much. But then that's also like, that's a, that's a picture of a miracle right there, you know, that I have these beautiful kids and I'm able to be their dad and be awake and, and be sober. And, and, you know, it's like, to me, that's really the goal is to, you know, piece together, help people piece together these lives that are really truly like we get to be spiritual beings, you know, not just not just consu- not just spiritual consumers, not just people that like the lifestyle of yoga pants and, you know, chakra pictures and stuff like that. But that, you know, we have access to all of these tools now where, you know, we can all be mystics in our in our own right. And then, you know, ultimately, then Mother Teresa in our own right, because if we turn our if we turn that part of our heart on it will inevitably turn into some kind of service. We'll be helping people. We'll be loving our family more. We'll be, like, loving our community more. Maybe we'll be called to be a teacher, a minister, or a helper in some formal way. But it's like it's just something that clicks in automatically.
1: So I have so many different questions I want to ask you. I'm going to derail off of um, the 12 steps for one moment um, and come back. But because you're talking about the authenticity of of yoga and um, and that conversation with God, which is so important to sobriety, I think I just want to really quickly um, discuss the big elephant in the room in the yoga community, which is that if you go to India, uh, yogis and yoginis, they are not drinking alcohol, and they're not doing drugs. It's not part of their lifestyle per se. Um, not as hmm. a whole, there are certain traditions that do experiment, but um, there's a lot of, but alcohol is a very big part of the Western lifestyle and has um, stayed in the yoga community, um, but to the point of where sometimes we're even seeing these classes, which are um, detox, retox. So you go in yeah. and you detox through your asana program, and then you drink a lot of beer and alcohol. and yeah. You know, and it's and you know for people that we're inviting to, you know, to learn more about the more traditional yoga um, tradition and meditation and how um, you know that plays a role in it and can help you in you know in your own sobriety. I did want to point out for those who are who are looking for this as their their sacred space and realizing that it's not always it doesn't always feel safe, and you should feel when you're going through when you're going through your you know your first. Three months, you know, you're just, you are, if you're going through um, alcohol withdrawal or drug withdrawal, a lot of times you're not doing that alone. A lot of times people go to facilities where they're just basically, they're detoxing your body. You're going through all the emotional and physical and mental detox. And then the next three to six months are incredibly sacred and tender because you have to really, harness your schedule, watch the places you're going, the people that you're with, there has to be a change of situation and, and daily schedule to help you maintain that recovery. And, um, and so I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or opinions on people because you, you would know not to go to a local bar, but lo and behold, yeah. you might go to yoga class where wine is present or they're saying, Hey, we're going to go to the bar yeah, after this
2: class. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, to me, it's, it's like to say it's a tragedy is not too strong of a word. It, it, comes, it comes from that whole thing that I, I talked about in the beginning of, of the industry and the sort of like mercantile thing. Because, you know, in, in business, the customer is always right. And more people will come to yoga and pay to come to yoga if they can also come and, and drink wine too. And, and it's like the lifestyle thing. You know, it's like people have this idea of a lifestyle that, you know, they like to drink wine and they like to do yoga. And so let's just do that together. And um, gosh, I I don't even know how much I want to say about it because it's just such a, it's such a, to me, um, it's just such a, a, a twisting and and really a diluting and a polluting of the tradition. And it's not just because I'm sober. It's not just a personal preference because I'm sober. You know, as a, you know, I guess now I could call myself an elder within this community. um, Because also the average age of the yoga teacher now is like 28. (laughs) But as an elder within this community, I'll just say that it is absolutely against, the tradition and it's absolutely against the original intention of the method to combine it with uh, alcohol, to combine it with cannabis, you know, out here, you know, there's a, there's a class in LA called bongs and gongs
0: where okay. they, smoke bong, they smoke
2: bongs, they smoke bongs into like a gong bath, you know, like listen to Tibetan gongs and stuff. And it's like, I, I think that it, it could be really fun. I mean, I, you know, when I was 15, I would have loved to, you know, go to bongs and bongs. Um, I think it could be really fun, but it's just not the same thing as actual yoga. You know, like the word for, for practice in Sanskrit is upaya, which means a remedy. So every practice that we do traditionally is a remedy for some ailment. And so, you know, for it to really have the remedial effect that we're looking for, um, that's going to dilute it. Now, somebody could say, well, I think Mr. Wagner, you know, has an ailment of having a really tight ass, and I think that his remedy could be to go and have a glass of wine in his yoga class and not be so judgmental. <laughs> Maybe so, but, but like, I, I just. You know, from from my perspective, it's really important. You know, I do, I, in my advanced training program, which is eight months long, um, it starts up in October, you know, where I'm training people you know, some of them want to be teachers, you know, they want to teach meditation. Some of them are already teachers and they just want, you know, some like deep training. And, you know, for other people, like any other yoga teacher training, it's just they want something intensive. And so they'll, they'll sign up for it and it, it goes for eight months. And I require um, everyone in the training to be clean and sober for that eight months. And it's, it's a struggle for people. You know, you'd be surprised um, how hard it is for people to, to maintain that requirement. But from my point of view, um, part of it is just to have that clarity of mind and to sort of, like, get the benefit from not doing drugs and alcohol. But the other part of it is that, you know, once upon a time, maybe people got some kind of alternate consciousness by taking drugs or alcohol. You know, like, you know, sometimes the the yogis would smoke cannabis or do different kind of plant shamans would do like plant medicine and stuff like that to give them some alternative consciousness. But nowadays, everyone's on drugs and alcohol. Mm -hmm. Being stone cold sober is actually the alternative consciousness. Because even if people aren't like drinking and getting drunk, it's just so much a part of. Um, modern life for people to, you know, come home and have a glass of wine or come home and have a beer or come home and smoke some weed. And it's not like they're, like, full-on, you know, partying or, or being drug addicts, but um, that really changes your it changes your consciousness. And I'll see it in the people in my training that, you know, I'll talk to everyone who does, who does my training ahead of time and, you know, kind of find out where they're at. And they'll say, no, it's not, you know, I, you know, I drink wine a little bit or, you know, whatever, but that's not going to be a problem. And we'll get a month into the program and, you know, I do private sessions with people pretty regularly that are in the training. And in the private session, they'll just be like, wow, I didn't realize, you know, but I've been having that glass of wine for the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden now my relationship with my husband is changing or, you know, like all of a sudden the things that didn't, you know, uh, I didn't notice before now I'm realizing really drive me crazy.
0: <laughs>
2: and so, you know, there's this kind of fog that lifts for people. So yeah. I one mean, of it's, the it's such been, a, it's, it's such a big thing.
1: It is. It's a lot to unpack, but I'm, I'm glad that you just talked a little bit about also again about traditionally it's not necessarily part of the yoga community. And so I think that, um, you know, one of the things, getting back to what you were talking about, and which is, you know, the first good chunk of the 12 steps um, is all about releasing and, you know, letting, letting go, letting God, if you will. Um, there's one um, Swami who uh, comes over to the U.S. from India. He'll be here again um, end of September, beginning of October. Um, his name is um, Swami Guru Sharananda. And he has this, you know, during the fire ceremony – um, you know you're taking the rice and you're offering it to the fire and at the end um, uh, words that he's leaving, you through you're saying swaha you know meaning I'm letting go and letting God essentially you know and he's teaching you this practice and again I think it goes back to what you were talking to me you know a little bit earlier about the Christian minister who is teaching the Bible for example is that Swami um, Swamiji is teaching through example of this just offering this rice to the fire over and over again, is saying to, you know, to the god, goddess, like, I'm letting go, I'm letting go, I'm letting go, <laughs> you know, over and over and over again. And I know he teaches you that through the practice of, you know, um, if you're working with Durga, who's one of the Hindu goddesses, is, is just to constantly sit in that meditation space and let go. Um, and I think it's yeah. difficult for people to do that because it's very countercultural, to the way we live in this culture we're supposed to always be in charge and right um, and it makes it very difficult to be able to say you know I don't know you know um, that I have the power over you know this uh, whether it's alcohol or drugs um, you know which is that first step which is we admit that we're powerless powerless over alcohol and our lives would become unmanageable and and turning to God and just being like, okay, so I'm having trouble controlling myself, and I really, really need your help. It's kind of like you said, that moment of you're ready to die in the car. Yeah. And you pray to God, like, please come save my life. And that's exactly what it seems like the 12-step start with, which is it's the recognition of I've now lost control of my life, and I don't know if I'm going to yeah. survive this, and I just need help. Yeah.
2: yeah. Can and, you talk a little bit about and, that? Totally. That's, I love it. And and that's the thing is that you know like in business the customer is always right, In in traditional spiritual teaching, the customer's kind of always wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like 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 traditionally, you you I heard a, a Tibetan teacher once say that the guru is the person that you hire to assassinate you.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's
2: great. Right. And and you know because the idea is is that the problem you know it could be that you know somebody is an addict and they need to get sober or they need to you know overcome their their compulsions addiction or whatever but you know we're all dealing with our ego you know yours is called Susan mine is called David and that's the problem you know like our souls are perfect our 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 beings are are supremely wonderful already. The practice is going to help us get to that. No matter what the practice is, that's what the practice is getting us to. But it has to go through our ego. It has to go through the Susan. It has to go through the David. And um, we don't go through that by reinforcing all of our opinions and all of the things that we think. And in many cases, you know, traditionally, you know, there's so many stories in India of, you know, the traditional guru just blowing people's minds and, you know, sometimes just hurting their feelings or, you know, like the, you know, the surgeon shows up at the ashram for, for their spiritual education and the guru makes them scrub the toilet. Where the, you know, the, to- <laughs>
0: yeah. the
2: toilet scrubber comes to the ashram for spiritual education and all of a sudden he's the is the manager of the ashram and it's like the spiritual practice should be always keeping us on our heels and out of that comfort zone of, I know, you know, like, and again, the new age will tell us, well, we know everything, like every, all the answers are within, like, you know, like we don't need anyone on the outside telling us, you know, Anything, and, and that's an opaya, that's a remedy for like the old organized religions and authoritarian regimes that would like hide themselves in spirituality. And, and yes, all the answers are within, but they're within, locked in a very tight box called our ego that has to be opened. Then we can get all those answers. But, like, it, the, the path to that is by humility, and it's by recognizing what we don't know. And, you know, like the, the Skanda Purana, one of the texts of India, has this verse that says, it translates as, those who know, know not,
0: mm-hmm. and
2: those who know not actually know. And, you know, that's, like, the first verse that I have my trainees study <laughs> in, my, in my advanced training is because it's just, like, we're here to, like, give ourselves better and better questions and better and better open spaces rather than knowing more stuff or reinforcing the stuff that we do know. You know, we're trying to take off layers, not put them on.
1: I loved how you talked about how the process of recovery um, and, and just also working with gurus in general, spirituality involves humility. And I think that is one of, you know, again, it's where when you're in recovery, that's where it takes you. Because first you have to remove the ego, but then you have to realize you are a faulted human being and you've harmed other people. Let's write a list of the people that you've harmed and now you actually have to go to them and you need to admit your are you know, admit the harm that you did and apologize. And that takes it, that you can't get there until you put your ego aside because you have to be able to come to it from a place of complete awakening, if you will. Um, and, and, and a space of, um, you know, of the apology has to come from within, come from the heart, you know, so you do have to do all of that deep searching, you know, it's kind of the take care of yourself before you can take care of others. And, and yeah. the unattached, completely unattached to the outcome of, of apologizing to someone, you know, of admitting fault. Um, It's called the making amends um, in the 12 step. Uh, Do you have anything that you usually talk about in your 12 step program about the making amends part and writing the list of all the things that the ways that you caused harm? That's deep stuff.
2: That's very difficult to do. It's super deep, and and the the framers of the 12 steps were really inspired when they they wrote them. And the amends is usually thought of as one step, but it's actually two steps. It's the eighth and the ninth step. So the eighth step is um, made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became ready to make amends to them all. So that's a whole step. And, and part of it, people think of writing the list. So you write down, Well, oh, I ripped off this guy and I, you know, peed on that guy's couch and, you know, whatever we did when we were using and drinking, we know about the list, but the second half of that step is really important. So we made a list of all the people we had harmed and became ready to make amends to them all. So that becoming ready is a big deal. Um, because you can just, like, make the list and then just go, you know, march yourself out there and, and, and just say that you're sorry, and that doesn't necessarily get the work done. And then, you know, the ninth step is the one, you know, make direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so, injure them or others. But, you know, the making amends, part of it is like you're asking, in many cases, you're asking for forgiveness or you're just being humble. You know, you're just saying, look, this is what I did. How can I make this right? But then the other thing, and, and what I've been really into recently, is the practice of forgiveness, mm-hmm. which is in the same, it, it's kind of like works on the same area of the heart chakra in a certain way, where it, and it, again, just goes against the ego so much. Because, you know, in the amends thing, the ego never wants to be wrong. And So if you just say, okay, I'm wrong, I'm sorry, that's huge. But then the ego also never wants to let somebody else off the hook for being wrong. And so, like, the practice of forgiveness, and in, in the more radical the case of forgiveness, the, the deeper it is in the heart, I believe, too. But to just say, okay, well, you've harmed me, and I forgive you. That is also just, it goes against the grain of the ego so intensely. And Mm -hmm. just like in the the 12th step about making amends, you know, if I was going to make a, then one of them was to forgive all the people that you have resentments against, there would need to be a clause in there about be ready to do that. You know, become ready to actually forgive them so that it's not just like a codependent thing or it's not just a, you know, you're doing it out of like a lack of self-love or something like that, but you're actually doing it, you know, from a space of strength.
1: And then moving from there, you know, the 11-step talks about kind of swinging back the conversation towards, um, you know, the beginning was it's a thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with mm. God as we understood him pray only for knowledge of his will for us and the power to carry that out. And I think that every major religious tradition provides the opportunity for someone to, to do that step. Um, mm. And that's the, you know, the basis for each tradition. Um, even though we have these different ways of getting our getting to God, right. It's all about, um, creating that relationship, understanding, praying, you know, um, and knowing that we're here to live our life for, for God, you know, and that God's work can, we can be a vehicle for that. We can be the ministry of that. Right. And, um, yeah. and I'm wondering, it's like, you can talk a little bit about how your experience, um, you know, whether it was working with a Christian minister or if, if it's been the, the work that you do or from some of the teachers that you've been inspired by because you've studied with so many wonderful, um, you know, uh, Indian gurus and, and, and teachers. If there's anyone that really kind of stands out to you as, an, as a living example of that. Ooh, of,
2: of, in particular, the relationship?
1: The aspect. relationship or even as a vehicle for compassion
2: you know, um yeah. a
1: vehicle for speaking to God and, and how they, they live their lives as as a
0: servant. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Well you know it's funny my, my little kids um are, are here with me right now. I'm a I'm a single dad so when uh it's my turn to have the kids it's it's just me and them and this is this is one of my days. And um to you know for the most part um I'm I'm very judicious about, you know, their screen time. Like we don't do a lot of screen time in our house, but one of, but sometimes, you know, I, we do for quality things. And for the sake of this interview this morning, I got up and I queued up uh, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. And so oh, yeah. when they woke up, so when they woke up, they came down and they could just, you know, turn that on and just get, get right into Mr. Rogers. And, you know, and I can hear it in the background. And quite frankly, Fred Rogers, um, uh, there's a, a great documentary that is, it might be out of the theaters now, but I saw it recently called won't You be my neighbor about him and his life and his ministry. I mean, he was, he was a minister and he chose instead of to, to have a church to have that show as his ministry. And I just think that, like, he and, and, you know, what you see if you see that documentary or, you know, learn anything about his life is that he was really like that. I mean, he was just getting on camera and just completely being himself and, and giving permission, you know, to the young children to be themselves and really teaching parents to hold that space for their kids. Um, in this just incredible career, you know, that spanned decades and, um, and also in many cases was doing radical things and really pushing the envelope in terms of what he was talking about on TV and the pace of, of the material on TV um, and what he would not talk about, and what he would not do in the show. Um, you know, that is what that's those are the kind of teachers that tend to inspire me are the ones that are rabble rousers in a certain way <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> ones ones that are willing like like Norm Jager, you know I told you about the the you know that that first uh mentor that I had, you know we would do the Sunday service for these folks, but then he would do things throughout the week for them too and I can remember one of the things that we would do is we'd have movie night, you know, maybe, you know, movie day, you know, maybe once a month or something. And we would just go and just take over a movie theater, you know, with all these (laughs) folks in wheelchairs and, you know, different kind of walking styles and, you know, different body uh, issues and whatever, And we'd just take over a movie theater and go see some silly movie. And it'd usually be some, you know, screwball comedy or something. And it was, it was very punk rock in a certain way Um, because it would, you know, and he, and he was into that. (laughs) He was into sort of like putting it in people's face a little bit. Um, Things that, you know, it might feel more in the comfort zone to pretend like isn't there. And, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, his, his teacher was Jesus and Jesus was very much about that. He was such a revolutionary and, you know, it's the same way with the yoga masters that I've studied with that I've learned the most are, you know, the ones that are really willing to sort of insist that what we're doing is actually helping people as opposed to just carrying on some tradition. You know, like, yeah, it's not, I, I don't like people that have wine in their yoga class because it's against the tradition, but, you know, the bottom line is because they're just not going to get as much help that way, and they might get harmed mm-hmm. that way. So, yeah, so I would say if I had to choose one, I'd just choose, you know, Mr. Rogers. <laughs> I think he's such a badass, um, such a badass minister, you know, in many ways.
1: <laughs> I love that. That's actually quite perfect. Um, if you are interested <laughs> in learning more about David Wagner, please visit his website, davidwagner.com. And if you David are interested H. in taking... Don't forget, the, don't forget the H.
2: It's David H. David Wagner.
1: H. Wagner. Thank you very much. And I'll yeah. make sure to post that yeah. link on the Facebook page again as well. And if you're interested in taking his um, The Courage to Change workshop, which is built into the... which uh, focuses around the 12 steps. You can go to his website, inneryoga.com. Uh, David, thank you so much for being um, on Zen Up today. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom.
2: Yeah, this is really fun. Thank you. I loved your questions. And keep up the good work. It's so great that you're doing this and, you know, that you have this ministry. It's really inspiring, really great, really to be commended. So keep up the good work, Susan.
1: Thank you so much.